This is Mandite and the Apprentice Mage, Book One of the Mandite Chronicles, written and narrated by Stu Venable. Chapter 14 When the page arrived from Duke Elkis's palace, I was shocked, to say the least. He wore the Duke's livery. He was formal, almost smug, when he arrived at the Bonnie Scarecrow. When he walked in, he very formally handed a note to Basil. He gave Basil a reverential bow, no doubt due to his former station. I doubt the lad was old enough to have worked under Basil, but someone had told him who Basil had once been. The three of us were enjoying a dinner that Basil had called the Gamesman's Feast. It consisted of rabbit, venison, goose, and duck, all roasted with root vegetables, including onions, parsnips, carrots, and turnips, and it was delicious. The final dish, which remained untouched, was announced as fox pâté. Cadal looked sickened when the footman announced the dish. "'What's wrong, Cadal?' Jas asked almost immediately after the footman departed. "'Fox, it's too much like dog. You shouldn't eat dog. It's too noble of an animal to be food.' he said, looking queasy. "'How can you call a beast that spends its day licking its own arse noble?' I asked, almost incredulous. "'It's not that. They're loyal. More loyal than most people I know,' Cadal said simply. None of us ate the fox pâté. Basil approached our table with a note in hand. "'What's that?' Cadal asked. "'It's an invitation.' "'For all of us to attend a meeting of His Grace's Privy Council,' he announced. "'What?' I said, dropping my fork. "'You heard me right. "'The good Cardinal Mages spoke with His Grace and conferred with the other viziers. "'His Grace has decided that you should join His Privy Council "'so they may ask additional questions about the matter at hand,' he explained. "'I looked at Jazz, and she looked back, wide-eyed. We both turned to Basil, who bore a smug expression. When I caught Jass's eye, I gave her a nod of praise. "'Well done, Jass,' I said. She looked to be in shock. "'What should I wear? Is this all right?' Cadal asked wryly. "'You wouldn't be expected to wear anything formal, given your station,' Basil answered. Cadal looked offended, but he shrugged and continued eating. "'They want us to help come up with a plan?' Jass asked in wonder. "'No,' I quickly corrected her. "'They want information. "'Once they have that, they may tell us to get on the next ship out of Eldamy, "'or they may arrest us. "'They also may ask you to help,' Basil suggested. "'And although you hold no patents of magic, they do know of your talent. "'At least Xavier and Samana do. "'I doubt that,' I said with a frowning smirk. It was the next morning when Basil hired a horse and wagon to take us to the palace. On the way, he gave us a brief but detailed primer on proper court etiquette, should we meet the Duke during our visit. Jass listened intensely, as did I. Kidal feigned disinterest, but when Jass or I asked a question, Kidal listened to the answer. A while later, I noticed that Kidal was looking at the ring on my finger. "'Why does that stone change color?' he finally asked interrupting Basil's etiquette lesson. I held my hand up, examining the ring. It was slowly changing from medium gray to a darker gray. "'It's the first thing I enchanted at the Collegium,' I replied with a note of nostalgia. "'But what's it do?' Cadal asked. "'It's a simple tracking spell. Beneath the stone is a hair from an individual. It tells me how close they are,' I explained. "'It can track Xavier!' Jass said, immediately jumping to the correct conclusion. "'Mandite, how could you?' Basil said, somewhat offended. I held up my palms in my own defense. "'I was but a child when I wrought it,' I protested. "'But you still use it,' Basil replied with an accusatory glare. "'Well, I wear it, and check it from time to time,' I said with a smile. "'That is very impolite,' Basil said." "'Well, you don't have a sibling wanting to put you in jail,' I retorted. Basil ignored that, and we continued the ride to the Duke's palace in silence. When we arrived at Duke Elkis's palace, I was awestruck by the grandeur of it. 
I'd only ever seen the palace from afar. It was made of a white stone that was mined and barged from Highfall thousands of years ago. The outer walls of the palace stood forty-eight feet high, according to Basil. They were topped with stone carvings of dragons, all of which looked down on us lowly mortals. The outer gates were made of iron-reinforced stone wood, which was harvested from trees of the ancient forest that lay inland and to the north. Not far from where I suspected Maroleth might be holed up, I noted. As our wagon approached, the doors swung outward, no doubt using some unseen mechanism within. The courtyard was laid with stone tiles, thick enough to withstand the weight of the many wagons and carriages that passed over it. The palace proper was made from the same stone, with four turrets standing nearly one hundred feet high. I could spy guardsmen patrolling the battlements on the turrets and in between. A lone butler, dressed in the white and gold livery of the duke, stood before the open doors to the castle. They, too, were wrought from the same stonewood and were also reinforced with black iron. As the wagon stopped, the butler approached Basil and gave him a slight bow. Basil returned it. They had a brief conversation that none of us could overhear. From what I had heard, you learned to whisper well when you were part of a noble household. The butler led us into the castle through a large and extremely grand entryway. There were paintings of notable dukes and shields bearing the sigils of literally hundreds of former rulers. Within the entryway, I felt the gravity of nearly ten thousand years of history. I didn't count them, but I knew there were four hundred and thirty-four shields displayed within the entryway, each representing the reign of a single duke. One for each duke in the Elkus line. A line that had remained unbroken for four hundred and thirty-four generations. Each time a duke died, the eldest male descendant of that duke had taken his father's place. Within each portrait, I could see familial ties: a strong chin, a large regal nose, and wise, studying eyes. The history of the old empire was fragmented and long faded to time, but no dynasty of that ancient empire. Had lasted this long, I stood in wonder as I saw the visual representation of the longest dynasty to ever exist. It was humbling and terrifying. How could a single family successfully rule the sovereign duchy of Eldamy for nearly ten thousand years? It made my mind reel, and it gave me hope. If the Maroleth we were dealing with was the same one from the siege of Eldamy. He was almost three thousand years old. The Elkus dynasty was more than three times that age. If that dynasty had not been usurped by Maroleth, it was very likely the oldest dynasty in history. That fact gave me a level of comfort I had not felt since before I had met Jas, and before I knew there was a three thousand year old necromancer stalking the shadows of our world. Among the hundreds of shields. There was a small, unadorned door on the right wall. The butler opened it and beckoned us to enter. We entered a small room with a large table dominating the center. Chairs surrounded the room, but they were pushed against the wall to allow free movement around the large table. Master Turnwell, former head butler to His Grace, Masters Mandite and Kidal, and Apprentice Jas, the butler announced as he held the door for us to enter. Xavier was here, as well as Samana, in addition to an older man in a uniform of a soldier. I didn't recognize his insignia, but he was very high up in the military hierarchy. Xavier made introductions. The old man was Lord Field Marshal Thur Bramstone. It turns out he was about as high as one can get in the military. I had heard of him, but never met him before. He had served as Field Marshal for both the current Duke and his father. I apologize that the rest of the Privy Council is not here. They are making other arrangements, also regarding the matter at hand. Xavier said, "As I had suspected, this meeting was strictly one to gather information, as was obvious by Field Marshal Bramstone's constant barrage of questions. He was particularly interested in hearing what Cadal had to say about the Duke's pride and the events following her destruction. He never asked the name of the ship Cadal was on." When they encountered the Duke's pride, which was fortunate, 
piracy was a capital crime. Perhaps the aging field marshal suspected, but didn't want to let legalities get in the way of gathering much-needed intelligence. After nearly an hour of interrogation, Xavier finally said, "Perhaps we should tell Mandite and his companions of their part in this." Perhaps we should," the old field marshal said. "But first, I would have you trace upon this map, if you would, the direction of your last scrying of this dark mage." I first pulled out my own map, which was remarkably similar to the one on the table, but less detailed. I consulted it and picked up two small stone markers that resembled chess pieces. I placed one near the area of the Bonnie Scarecrow, and the other in the Sea of Sand. A great desert that extended far beyond the Wall Mountains. Then I picked up a small spool of thread and twisted one end around the first marker, extending the thread to the second. Then I looked at the field marshal. He was furiously writing in a leather journal, making note of landmarks and coordinate markers on the map. He wrote for some time. Finally, Xavier said with a clearing of his throat,、uh, "Field marshal, oh yes." My apologies. We need a second scrying from a good distance to triangulate the position," Field Marshal Bramstone said. "If you have the stone," I said to Xavier, "I can do that now." "No," the Field Marshal interrupted. "It needs to be from a far greater distance." He pointed to the map. "Up here, I should think, by Ekoha Smirt," he said. "What?" I asked. "The Lord Field Marshal is used to working with mages." He's worked with many. He knows that what he asks is an inconvenience, but if he requires it, it is not without reason. Samana chided, not so gently. I'm sure his reasons are sound, but I started. Then I realized what he was doing. With two lines of a scry, he could have a point of intersection, and the further away the second line was from the first, the more accurate the point of intersection would be. It was an application of scrying magic. I had never considered. I looked at the field marshal with an impressed expression. He gave me a small but weary smile. "You know your stuff, field marshal," I said. "Lord field marshal," Basil quickly corrected. "Sorry, Lord field marshal," I amended. "Not to worry. I've been doing this for a long time, and I've found that those with talents often don't recognize their full usefulness," he said, giving me a stare with clear blue eyes. Encircled by wrinkles, how will I get the information to you? I asked. Xavier produced two brass cups from his purse. They were polished to the point that they appeared to be made of gold. They weren't ornate, but simple, smooth brass cups. You'll speak the location into this cup, he said, handing me one. I shall hear it in this one. Keep repeating the location until I have confirmed that I have received it. I put the cup in my own purse, and Xavier put the other one in his. Cardinal Majors, I would like to speak with Master Mandite privately, if I may," the field marshal said. Everyone, Xavier, Samana, Jas, Kadal, and Basil, looked at each other with surprise. I joined in as well. Why would this old battle horse want to talk to me privately? Then they all slowly walked out of the room. The field marshal walked to the door and closed it, and I took the time to examine the man. He was tall, half a head taller than I. He had once been a strong man, but age had withered him. He wore a red uniform tunic, with two gold braids on each shoulder. There were emblems on the epaulets that probably denoted his rank. Unlike many senior officers, he wore no ribbons or medals, though he had no doubt earned many. He wore tan riding breeches and black leather riding boots that came up to the knee. A wide black leather belt was wrapped around his tunic, giving his form the illusion of a broad chest and narrow waist. His hair was white and sparse, his face tanned with decades of exposure to the sun. His blue eyes were surrounded by wrinkles, as was his mouth, around which he wore a neatly trimmed mustache and beard. "How are your scry walls, Master Mandite?" He asked as he walked back to his place opposite me. No one's caught me yet, I said. He smiled. Good. Can you lay one upon this room? I don't want us overheard, he said. I did so. It took me about ten minutes to do it, 
as I discovered the whole room was rife with enchantments, no doubt other scry walls placed by Xavier and his peers. Once I was finished, I said, "'That should do it. Now, what's so secret?' "'You are going to play the part of my contingency plan, I'm afraid,' he started. "'The walls of this palace have ears, and I have suspicions that our necromancer might be listening. You're quite sure your scry walls are secure?' "'Absolutely.' "'It's probably the Stonewood Doors. This place is teeming with them, and they come from a forest not far from where he might be,' I said, indicating the Stonewood Forest, near where my line had intersected the Wall Mountains. "'Is that possible?' he said with horror. "'Normally I would say it wasn't, but we're dealing with a mage who may have been practicing for three millennia. I couldn't guess what he's capable of,' I admitted." "'Very well,' he said, sitting down. He motioned for me to join him, so I sat down at a chair next to him. "'I'm going to send three people with you to Ekoha Smurt,' he said. Two infantrymen. They're quite experienced and talented, and an assassin.' "'An assassin?' I exclaimed. "'Yes. Our patrols have spotted what looks like an army near the Wall Mountains, directly to the east, and possibly a large one.' "'the field marshal explained. "'My army is assembling twenty miles east of the city. "'We're assuming he's going to attempt another siege of the city, "'but we want to meet that army in open battle before that "'and disrupt his plans. "'Once we get the location from you, "'we'll march on him if need be, "'but I don't think our travel will go unobserved or unmolested.' "'Xavier had mentioned that the Duke was mustering an army. "'This was it.' "'And what are we and your infantrymen and assassin to do?' I asked. "'I expect, if we're engaged by the necromancer's army, "'that his attention will be diverted toward us. "'I want you and my team to be ready to head to his position. "'If we are, in fact, held up by his army, "'I want you to get my team as close to the necromancer as possible. "'They'll take it from there,' he said. "'You... "'Trust me to do this?' I asked carefully. "'I didn't until I spoke with Xavier, quite frankly. "'He says you're quite capable and motivated to put an end to this dark mage. "'He said you risked much coming here,' he explained. "'And I was floored again. "'Xavier, my twit of a brother, had talked me up to the field marshal. "'Not only that, but he said I was worthy of this man's trust. "'I didn't know what to think.' "'I understand,' I lied. "'When can I tell my companions?' "'I wouldn't mention anything until you get to Ikoha Smurt, "'or at least far away from here. "'It will just be the six of you, "'and I trust my team entirely,' he said. "'Even the assassin?' I said wryly. "'He smiled again. "'Yes, even her.' "'You realize this army will be largely undead?' I asked. "'Not to tell you your business,' "'But I don't think that will be like going up against a living army.' "'He smiled again, but there was no mirth in it. "'I have been studying the writings of Lord Field Marshal Phelan Burke. "'He commanded both the defences of the city and the army that broke the siege. "'He had a lot to say about it, and he seemed to keep very detailed notes. "'I have a good idea what we're up against,' the Field Marshal replied." "'And old Phelan had neither cannon nor musket at his disposal. "'I do,' he said, smiling again. "'I've studied Phelan's actions, both the smart ones and his mistakes.' "'No doubt Maroleth has been doing the same,' I said cautiously. "'Suddenly the old Field Marshal looked twice his age. "'That is true,' Field Marshal Bramstone sighed. "'But there is no help for it.' We are the ones who stand at the precipice of history now. This is our battle, whether we want it or not. The old field marshal's words struck me like a rock to the head. This man had been the highest officer for more than a generation. He battled nomads from the Sea of Sand, Northmen incursions into Ikoha Smurt, and even one southerner invasion. He won them all. Now he seemed resigned to his fate, whatever that might be. I began to wonder about Cardinal Mage Basma. Basma was the preeminent battle mage of the duchy. 
He had escorted Bramstone on most of his campaigns and probably played a pivotal role in each. What had I done when I helped the crew of the Scarab take the Duchess Adina? What had I done when I changed the dynamics of that sea battle, which resulted in Basma's death? Had I unwittingly killed Field Marshal Bramstone's most valuable asset and weapon? Would this army have a chance without the Duchy's most powerful battle mage? Basma's body was now languishing on Tremble Isle, or perhaps making its way to Eldamy aboard another ship. I wanted to ask Bramstone about it. Did he know Basma was overdue? Were his battle plans relying on Basma's presence? But I couldn't ask those questions. That would implicate me and surely result in my arrest or execution. I kept my mouth shut and felt ashamed in doing so. I imagine the great makers of history often go to their fates reluctantly. To do otherwise would be madness, I said, trying to assuage my guilt and reassure the aging field marshal. Bramstone laughed, and it was a sincere laugh. That is very true, Master Mage, he said. Let's hope history is kind to us. Chapter 15 By the time I had prepared Kedal and Jass for the trip north, they had grown suspicious of me, as they knew I was hiding something. While the fact that I suggested we all secure cold-weather clothing didn't cause any suspicion, my suggestion that Kedal procure flintlock pistols and the required accoutrements did— he eyed me suspiciously when he agreed to the errand. He returned hours later with five pistols, a small pouch of lead balls, a few ingots of lead, a ball mold, and a small cask of gunpowder. As flintlocks were a new development in the world of weapons, they were quite expensive. I had tapped my line of credit with Basil to pay for them. As collateral, I gave Basil the location of my cottage on Lover's Isle and told him how to find it and open the door. Not giving too many details, I told him there was an item of great value there, and if I didn't make it back, he could have it, also requesting that the rest go to Jass, should she survive. I also wrote out a will, leaving all of my possessions on Ekota Isle to Jass. I gave it to Basil, and he took it gravely. So, there's a chance you won't return, Basil said to me in his small office. Oh, yes, I replied. I don't think any part of this will go well. Basil looked at me, searching my face for some clue of what I was hiding. I was hiding the fact that I had indirectly killed the Duke's most powerful military asset, Basma, but apparently I hid that fact well. If it goes very badly, I will instruct Jas to return here. She can help you find the cottage on Lover's Isle. You'll need to give her my will... She will need to present it to Abigail Blackstone. She's my landlady on Ekota Isle. Jas can handle everything there, I said grimly. Basil nodded. You know, Basil started, when I helped you escape those many years ago, I never thought I'd see you again. Neither did I, I said, smiling. We never know where fate may take us. Basil looked out his window for a moment. Then he said, the folk out there know about the assembling army. They're not stupid. They've seen companies of soldiers leave and not return. The Lord Field Marshal dispatched them subtly, but that only conceals so much. That is to be expected, I said. This won't be like the last siege. Back then, Eldamy barely extended beyond the city walls. Now there are probably three or four times the number of people living outside of the walls as live within them, Basil mused. A siege today would cost tens of thousands of lives. I know, I said. I'm sure the Lord Field Marshal knows it as well. He's going to try to cut off their path to the city. But if he fails, Basil began. I know, I said. Jas, Kadal, and I waited just outside the northern gates of the city for our escorts, which I didn't mention until we got there. The northern gates of the city of Eldamy were as imposing as the rest. The wall was made of the same white stone looming far over us. The gates were made of that nearly impenetrable ironwood, and they were reinforced with the same black iron. 
Merchant trains made up of dozens of wagons and men-at-arms passed us as we lingered outside the gates. At this early hour, most of the traffic was heading out of the city. We stood just off the road so as not to hinder the mass of outbound traffic. "'Who are we waiting for?' Cadal demanded. He was very suspicious now. He had discerned that I was hiding something, and he didn't like it. "'The Lord Field Marshal wants to send escorts with us, in case there's any trouble,' I explained. Uh "'Uh-huh,' Cadal said. He gave Jass a significant look, and she returned it. I was becoming exasperated with their distrust. They knew that I had a private meeting with the Lord Field Marshal. That much had not been a secret.' They also knew that the field marshal didn't want to say what he was going to say in front of other members of the Privy Council. That alone should have conveyed the delicacy of the discussion. Look, I finally said, I can't tell you everything until we're well clear of Eldamy. It has to be that way. My apologies, but you'll understand once you know. Kadal looked angry. Jass just looked hurt. I had trusted her with all kinds of secrets of the magical arts— No doubt she felt I should trust her with this. But I was unswayed. If Maroleth could tap into the stone wood used in the palace and much of the construction of the outer wall gates, I just couldn't risk it. And I certainly didn't want to share my suspicions about the stone wood with an earshot of the stuff. I saw our escorts approaching, two older men and a young woman. The two men appeared to be brothers. No, twins. Though the years had aged them in different ways, I could tell that they had once looked identical. Both wore their hair long and tied into great gray tails. They were clean-shaved, but one wore a massive scar across his nose and cheek. One was dressed as a merchant, and the other, the one with a scar, as a guard for hire. Each wore a scabbard, and each had a pistol tucked in his belt. The one dressed as a guard also used a long rifle as a walking stick. He seemed to be walking with a rather pronounced limp. The young woman was dressed in nondescript traveling clothes, including breeches, a loose-fitting tan shirt, but with a long hooded cloak fastened around her neck. She was pretty, but not overly so, with her brown hair cropped short, almost spiky. We'll pick up the horses at the stable just down the road. We'll make introductions once we're on the way north, the young woman said, clearly taking charge. Kadal glanced at me through the side of his eyes, and he shook his head. After we procured our horses, which the young woman paid for, we set off north toward Ikoha Smirt. "'I'm Dale,' she said to break the silence. "'The merchant there is Bozel, and his brother is Torum. "'He's the one with the scar. That's the easiest way to tell them apart.' The scarred one, Torum, eyed her darkly, but his brother smiled." Torum barely has the sense to get out of the way of an incoming sword stroke, as denoted by his face, Bozel joked. I'm still prettier than you, Torum responded. I introduced my companions and myself, and we continued on. When are you going to share the big secret? Cadal said out of nowhere. Dale scowled at him and said, Not yet, Southerner. We need a couple days' travel between us and Eldamy. We rode on in silence. Once the outbound traffic from Eldamy thinned out, I set to continuing Jass's training. Jass and I are going to fall behind for a while. She needs to practice her control of the forces, I announced to my traveling companions. Well, get well away, Master Mandite. I do not wish to be within the blast radius of an apprentice's misfires, Torum said. True enough, added Bozel. We used to be stationed near the Collegium. "'It's a wonder that place still stands with all the accidental explosions.' "'The two brothers laughed and began regaling Kedal "'with tales of the many apprentice mishaps they had witnessed. "'Once we were at a safe distance, "'I had Jass recite each of the rhymes of the elemental forces, "'earth, air, water, and fire. "'We started with earth, as that was least likely to spook our horses. "'Do you remember the rhyme of the force of earth?' I asked. "'Of course,' she said, reciting it mechanically and perfectly. "'Very good, Jass. "'Now, to actually use the rhyme, you need to think upon each of the words. "'This is very important, as the words create a construct within your mind "'that will allow you to safely channel and shape the force to your intentions. "'It is not just the words, 
but the effect the words have on your mind and thoughts. They are describing the symbol of the force of Earth. Note each word carefully and try to envision the symbol in your mind. Again, please, I said. She recited the rhyme again, but this time a small cloud of dust appeared before her and fell upon her force's head. The horse shook its head in protest. I was impressed. It had taken me weeks of practice and hundreds of attempts at the Collegium to be able to create even a single speck of dirt. Jess created far more than that on her second try. I had her try again, but suggested she attempt to manifest the force of Earth off to the side rather than over her poor mount's head. She did so. By her fifth attempt, she had produced a solid stone about the size of her fist. I realized that Earth magic might be her forte. As she was doing things with the force of Earth, I could only manage after months of study. We then moved on to the force of air, which was my forte. We started with the air rhyme described in my brother's book. And Jas took to it as quickly as she did the earth rhyme. Very good, Jas. You are certainly a quick study. I said. I was actually getting a bit jealous, and I silently chided myself for thinking that. But I was still annoyed. Now I'd like you to try a different air rhyme. I wrote this myself while at the Collegium. I said with a bit of pride. Then I slowly recited the rhyme to her. She recited it back exactly. Then recited it again with purpose. A breeze picked up and shot ahead of us, causing Dale's cloak to flutter over her head. She, Torm, and Bozel looked back and gave us ominous glares. We slowed our mounts to give us more space. That works even better than Xavier's, Jas said. Can we try fire now? We're not working with fire on horseback. That's a great way to get thrown, I said. Horses have to be trained to carry mages hurdling battle magic, and I doubt that Gilding has had much experience with that. I am a little surprised it hasn't thrown you already. I muttered. What? She asked. Horses tend to get rather skittish around the forces, especially if they aren't tightly controlled. I explained. Now you tell me. She gave me an accusatory glare. We need to use our time as efficiently as possible, and falling off a horse isn't that dangerous. I lied. We set up camp near a rock formation a hundred yards from the road. Bozel and Torum patrolled the area and scanned the horizon in every direction. This took them most of the hour it took the rest of us to set up camp. After that, the two brothers disappeared. I heard reports of a rifle in the distance. Kadal and I stood up in alarm, but Dale just gave us a placating gesture and said, "It's fine. They're hunting." We sat back down, and I tried to relax. But then I noticed that Dale was eyeing Kadal with an appraising look. "Southerner, you any good with that dagger?" she asked as she stood. Many in Eldamy called those from the south of Highfall Southerners. It was often considered an insult, and Kadal appeared to know that. "I'm not too bad," Kadal replied, staring at her dangerously. "Come on," she said as she walked away. "Let's work up an appetite. No cutting, though. Just touch with the flat." Kadal looked at me as he stood. "This won't take long," he said, winking to me. I noticed as he walked away that Kadal was saddle sore. His legs were spread apart at the knees, and he walked with an exaggerated gait, protecting his chafed flesh. We could hear the sounds of exertion and an occasional battle cry from Kadal when the twins returned with a small wild calf. "Well done," I said. "I was thinking we'd eat hard bread and cheese tonight." Torm looked at his brother and said flatly, "We don't travel like that. Think you can dry what we don't eat, mage? Save it for later." Once again, a non-practitioner had come up with a use for my talents I had not considered. Not that I relished dehydrating leftovers for the whole trip. Of course, I said, but I think my apprentice Jas should do it. She needs the practice, especially with fire. Jas looked at me. Yes, she said eagerly. I can do it. While Bozel and Torum skinned and dressed the calf, I went over the rhyme of the forces of air and fire, explaining that fire must be tightly controlled, as we were trying to dehydrate rather than cook the meat. Bozel pulled a butcher's knife from the pack on his horse and began butchering the animal. 
He worked with quick, precise skill, cutting each major muscle from bone and sinew and slicing each into thin layers. He laid them over a rope tied between two trees. Jas and I got up and walked toward the meat-laden rope. Now, I've never dehydrated anything with magic before. Actually, seems like a rather mundane use of a miraculous talent, but it will be good practice, especially for your control. I said. I tried my hand at it myself, calling up the force of air and reciting the rhyme for the force of fire. I started out gently, but soon realized it would take hours to dry the meat. I pushed the air force harder, creating a torrent of warming air. The first few cuts of meat were dried in about ten minutes, and I realized this could be exhausting work. I already felt my control beginning to waver. Be careful, Jas. This is exhausting work. You'll need to balance fire and air. Give enough air to dry the meat quickly, but watch your use of fire.、Uh, no, wait. I said. I gestured toward camp, where Torum and Bosel were stacking wood for a cook fire. Go start that fire for them first. Let's see what you can do with fire before we set you loose on our meals for the next week. Don't bother with the kindling! I called to the twins. I pointed at Jas. Fire starter! They both looked at me and backed away from the stack of dried logs. There was genuine fear in their eyes. It seemed their tales about working near the Collegium were true. Go to Jas! I urged my apprentice. She walked over to the stack of logs, and I heard her quietly mutter the fire rhyme. Nothing happened. Recite it with purpose, Jas. Think upon each and every word. Visualize the symbol. You've seen it. You know it. Let the rhyme fill in the details. I called to her. I realized it would take Jas all night to dry that meat, so I turned to dry another section while she worked to start the fire. Then there was an explosion. I felt a blast of heat upon the back of my head. When I turned back towards Jas, the remnants of a column of fire more than fifty feet high was dispersing into nothingness. But the stacked logs were now ablaze, burning with rapid fury. Jas spun on her heels and stalked back toward me, a satisfied grin on her face. Though I've never understood it, perhaps because I struggled so much learning to control the force of fire. Some mages loved walking away from fiery explosions, and Jas was one of those mages. She walked slowly toward me, her chin held high. Bozel and Torm were aghast, staring at Jas with that same genuine fear. I laughed. Well done, Jas. Well done! I exclaimed. She turned back toward the blaze, surveyed it for a bit, and turned back to me, nodding with satisfaction. She grimaced as she got within earshot. I wasn't sure how much to use. That's a powerful force," she whispered. I laughed again. "Oh yes, it is. That's why battle mages use fire. It's extremely destructive, and it's difficult to control. It's almost as if that force doesn't want to be controlled," I said. "But if you're going to make jerky and not charred meat, you'll need to control it a little better. Only let the tiniest bit out when you dry the meat. You'll feel the force fighting you." And when you do, recite the rhyme in your mind. Reinforce the image of the symbol. That will help you keep it at bay. I explained. While Jas set about turning the thin fillets into jerky, Bozel put the calf's tenderloin on a spit and placed it over the fire. We'll eat well tonight, he announced. Torum returned from his pack with a skillet, in which he placed beef fat Bozel had trimmed from the calf. He then picked up a small canister of flour, and sprinkled some in once the fat rendered. Excuse me, Torum," I said, struggling to remember his name. "Are you making a sauce? No, a stew. Found some wild parsnips, and there's a sage bush back over that hillock," he said, tossing a bundle of said parsnips to Bozel, who deftly skinned and chopped them into tiny uniform cubes. Bozel passed the chopped parsnips back to his brother on a flat wooden platter. Torum then scraped the cube parsnips into the pan with the edge of a knife and began stirring gently. "Grab an onion from my pack," Torum said to his brother, "and maybe half a clove of garlic." His brother did so, deftly dicing each and putting them in the pan. Without a word, Bozel got up and walked to the horse again, returning with a few small canisters. 
Don't skimp on the salt again, he said, handing the canisters to Torum. You want to cook it? Torum asked menacingly. Yes, Bozel replied simply. Well, it's not your turn, is it? Torum said. I'll salt it as I see fit. I watched as Torum carefully sprinkled salt in the pan, along with other seasonings I didn't recognize. Then he tasted it, scowled at his brother, and added more salt. This back and forth went on for nearly half an hour when Dale returned. "'I'm starved,' she said, slightly out of breath. "'Is dinner ready?' "'Almost,' said Bozel. Then he looked up as Kidal limped back, only visible when he neared the firelight, as the night had grown dark. He was drenched with sweat, his shirt clinging to his chest. He was breathing heavily in a way I would have if I'd been forced to run a mile, uphill.' He seemed unable to catch his breath, and he stumbled to his mount, whereupon he pulled a water skin and nearly drained it. Bozel, Torum, and Dale smiled to each other, but none said a word. Kidal slumped down next to me, smelling of hard labor. "'I think I'm getting old,' he said to me. "'You're not a gaffer yet, Southerner. You did well. You just need to concentrate more,' Dale said as she filled a plate with slices of tenderloin and parsnip stew." That woman is like a demon with a knife. I've never seen anything like it. It's like she has four arms, Kadal panted. Long blades next time, he called out to her. Long blades tomorrow it is, Southerner, she called back. No, not not tomorrow. Maybe two days. Maybe three, Kadal said. Torum started laughing first, then Bozel. Dale, to her credit, never laughed, most likely to save Kadal the embarrassment. I was now glad I hadn't told Kadal and Jess of our companions. Most assassins begin learning their trade as soon as they learn to walk, and the first thing they learn is knife work. I doubted poor Kadal would fare any better with long blades, though. She's an assassin, isn't she? Kadal said, realization crossing his expression. Dale looked to Bozel, who shrugged. You are correct, Southerner, she said. "'And you let me spar with her knowing that?' he asked of me. "'I thought it would be good practice for you,' I said with a chuckle. "'Then who are the other two? Kadal demanded. "'We're members of the Duke's Guard,' Torum answered. "'Okay,' Kadal said. "'I'll spar with one of you tomorrow.' He got up and served himself a plate, and he brought one back for Jass. She thanked him and started in. Bozel offered me a plate as well. The twins were good cooks. Hell!' They could have done it for a living. I could have filled myself on parsnip stew alone, but they had roasted the tenderloin on a makeshift spit, and it was also heavily spiced and seasoned, and it was amazing. Each bite of tenderloin melted in my mouth. I'm no culinary expert. I see eating as a necessity. But this was a meal that rivaled anything Basil served at the Bonnie Scarecrow. And my delight at my meal reached new heights as I combined cuts of the tenderloin with the parsnip stew. The twins had somehow seasoned and spiced each dish to complement the other. Combining the two dishes created something that was more flavorful and delicious than I would have thought possible. "'Where did you learn to cook?' I asked with no small amount of wonder. "'Our mom,' they said simultaneously. "'Well,' "'God's bless her,' I said. "'And I meant it. "'Basil's chef and the stolen cook aboard the Scarab "'would do well to take lessons from these old veterans.' "'The two brothers smirked at each other and ate quietly. "'It's too bad we didn't bring some tarragon,' one said to the other. "'Yeah,' said the other. "'It might have saved this.' "'I wondered what the twins could create in a fully stocked kitchen.' If the Duke knew what these two could do in a kitchen, I doubted he would ever have risked their lives in the guard. Torum stood watch when we finally went to sleep. Everyone slept well, as both the exertion of the day's travel and our subsequent food coma left us exhausted. To my surprise, Torum was still on watch when dawn's first light woke me. But he was no longer just watching, he was cooking— He'd taken the remains of the previous night's meal and combined them with some eggs to create a sort of quiche. But when Torum handed me the plate—the others were still asleep—I noted there were various leaves mixed in with it. "'I went foraging before dawn,' he explained, though I hadn't actually asked the question. 
I found some wild spinach and arugula. There's also a bit of basil. Everyone else woke soon and enjoyed their breakfast. We struck camp, mounted our horses, and continued our journey. That morning, I learned it's possible to sleep on a horse, as Torum slept nearly the entirety of our next day's travel. On the second night, just after we made camp, I told Jass and Cadal of Lord Field Marshal's contingency plan, and how we were to escort the two soldiers and the assassin to Marwileth's keep if the army was stalled. Wait, Cadal said first. So we're to sneak in and kill this necromancer if he manages to stall an entire army. What in the world made you agree to this plan? I started to speak, but Dale interrupted me. It's not so foolhardy as it sounds, Cadal, she said, eschewing the term Southerner. Apparently his knife play had impressed her. The necromancer will be distracted commanding his army, especially at such a distance, she explained. How can he command his army from that far away? Cadal demanded. He can see what his undead see, and he can place commands in their rotting minds, she explained. Bah! Cadal exclaimed, gnawing on a piece of jerky. No, she's right. I imagine he would have to be able to do that. When Maraleth laid siege to Eldamy, he was never caught. It's possible he wasn't even there, I said. Won't he have to at least see them? Jas asked. Wouldn't he have to create a link with each one? Because if one was put down, he'd need another to take over. That's true, I said, giving her a nod of approval. But we don't know the extent of the force of undeath. Such abilities might come with the territory. They do, Dale said. I looked at Dale, and her pretty face was expressionless. Even though she was not a mage, she seemed to know a lot about the force of undeath. One day, Dale, you'll have to tell me why you know so much about necromancy, I said, eyeing the assassin. What makes you think I'll ever have to tell you anything, mage, she said. It wasn't exactly a threat or a challenge. It was simply a question regarding the facts at hand, and the facts at hand were disturbing. How did an assassin know so much about necromancy? I wondered if it was a result of briefings with Xavier and Samana. And if that was the case, the two cardinal mages had more than an academic knowledge of necromancy, which was even more disturbing. We'll need fresh mounts, Nikoha Smirt, Torum announced, cutting the tension. If we need to make that run to the east, we'll need new mounts and fast ones. How long will that trip take? Kadal asked glumly. Bozel tore off a piece of jerky and said, With good mounts, four or five days. "'if we travel light.' "'How is that army going to last that long?' Kadal asked. "'They can last a long time, and if they do get stalled,' Bozel said, "'the Lord Field Marshal is good at delaying actions. "'He'll have them chasing him all over the steps.' "'And he's got field artillery,' Torum added, also chewing on dried meat. "'The old man has been studying the records from Marleth's siege of Eldamy.' He knows the tactics the city guard used to break the siege. They use catapults, then, throwing chains fixed to rocks. I imagine chain shot fired through eight dozen twelve-pounders would work nicely. How does he know where to move his army? Jas asked. He has a good idea where the necromancer is hiding. He just wants Mandite second scrying to confirm it, Bozel said. Bozel's statement struck me like an iron pan to the face. If the Lord Field Marshal knew where Maroleth was, why was he sending me so far north? "'How much of this plan aren't you telling us?' I demanded. "'Our necks are on the line, too.' "'The Lord Field Marshal told me exactly what I told you, and no more,' Torum said flatly with the unquestioning tone of a lifelong soldier. "'We know enough to do our job,' Torum said. "'The old man always gives us that.' The two of them raised cups and toasted the old man. "'I don't know. It doesn't sound like we stand much of a chance,' Kadal said. "'It'll be tough, but the Lord Field Marshal will be distracting his army, so you don't have to wade through that nightmare,' Dale said. "'I think we may have the easier of the two jobs.' "'Never had to fight undead, thank the gods,' Bozel said. "'I have,' Kadal said. 
Torum, Bozel, and Dale looked at him with surprise. "'You have?' Torum asked. "'Yeah. It was on the far side of Ikota Isle,' he started. Then he retold the tale of the Duke's pride. "'How did you take them out?' Dale asked, with professional curiosity. "'We didn't have proper weapons,' Kedal started. "'Even the crew lost their blades swimming to shore. All we had was driftwood.' "'You bested undead two to one or worse with clubs?' Dale asked with disbelief. "'Only three of us survived, but yes,' Kedal said. There was no pride in his voice, only the hollowness of trauma. Jass's expression turned dark. "'Do you think that's what happened to my mother? Do you think she's part of his army?' she asked quietly. I didn't say anything, and I glanced at Kedal. He was staring at the ground, avoiding eye contact, lost in his own dark memories." "'He took your mother, Apprentice?' Dale asked, her voice filled with kindness. She nodded. "'Years ago,' she said. "'He'd set traps on our home island. She found one. She just disappeared. She was there walking down the trail, and the next moment she was gone.' Dale looked at Jass with sad eyes, but she didn't say anything. Torum took up the conversation. "'I wouldn't get your hopes up, lass,' he said gently. That was very likely her fate. I wouldn't give up all hope, he continued, then stared her in the eye. But it's unlikely she still lives. Kadal and I exchanged guilty glances. We had both meant to have this conversation with her, but it was two strangers who did it instead. Two strangers told her the truth when we couldn't. I felt small and powerless. Here was I capable of harnessing great powers to perform miracles, but I couldn't tell my apprentice a simple, honest, yet uncomfortable truth. In truth, I was being a terrible mentor. Sure, I dutifully put her to work learning the art and craft of magic, but my responsibilities to her extended much further. I had to provide moral grounding, demonstrate by example, if not the limits of what she can do, the limits of what she should do. And how was I to do that if I was too cowardly to tell her a harsh truth? True, Kadal couldn't seem to do it either, but I was her mentor, not he. Jas looked at me with an expression I could not read. Was she thinking about Basma's death? And what had that whole affair taught her about when and where she should use magic? I did not sleep well that night. If you would like to find out more about my writing... Go to stewvenable.com.